So this morning I want to talk about where we go during times of desperation. Most of you are probably familiar with seasons in your life or times in your life where you felt desperate. Maybe the bills are stacking up and you don't know how you're going to cover them more. Maybe your kids are acting out and you can't figure out exactly how to control them or how to help them with their behavior or with their school. Maybe it's a job that you just find absolutely overwhelming and you, you don't really have any other alternative, but you don't know how long you can keep doing it. Maybe it's a relationship with somebody that you love, but right now all you seem to do is have conflict and argue about everything. And Maybe it's, uh, you know, maybe you, you, you're looking for a companion and you've been looking for one for years and you're starting to wonder, uh, am I ever going to find that person? Maybe you got a major decision in your life. You, you just you feel lost. You don't know what to do, and you can see your life going in two different directions. Maybe you've had a loved one that you've sat beside as they've grown weaker and weaker, and you just felt out of control and desperate. Well, tonight, for, or this morning, for any of you guys that are familiar with that feeling of being desperate. I want you to know you're not alone. Uh, the, the story we're going to look at today is a story about someone who is familiar with desperation. And as we look at this story in the Bible, what I want you to do is I want us to put ourselves in the character's position. Try to like, because your circumstances aren't going to be the same as theirs, okay? But what happens is when you actually use your imagination and put yourself in the story, what you realize is the circumstances are different, but the emotions are the same, right? So you put themselves in the story, you put yourself in the story, and you start to, to resonate with the desperation of the character. Even though their circumstances are very unique and they're not the same as yours, you start to say, like, I felt that way before. I know I've, I've felt what they're going through. And then what you find is that the way that God comes and meets them in their desperation can encourage you for how God can come and meet you in yours. So today's story, 1 Kings 17, all right? Basically, Israel is being led by this uh, wicked king. His name's Ahab. He chose to marry the princess of the country to the north, Sidon, and she worshipped Baal, and he embraced her God and began to lead Israel to worship Baal. And Baal is the God of the rain. And so he's the God that they believed brought prosperity. And so Israel was actually very prosperous during this time. And so they were giving Baal all of the credit for their prosperity. They were worshiping him. And then all of a sudden, Elijah, Elijah, Verse in chapter 17, he just comes on the stage. He stands before the king. We don't know anything about him. And he just says, it's not going to rain again until I say so. And then God's word comes to him, and he goes off, and he hides by a brook. And God commands the ravens to feed him. And he drinks from the brook, and he eats the food that the ravens bring. And just like God said, it stops raining. So every morning, Elijah gets up, and he drinks, and he eats, and he waits, and he notices the brook begins to get smaller and smaller until it's a stream, and then a creek, and then a puddle, and 
one morning he wakes up and is actually dry. So the Bible says in verse 7, after a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Elijah finds himself feeling desperate. He doesn't have a plan B. He doesn't have a canteen full of water. Uh, he doesn't have family that he can reach out to and go and stay with for a little while until he gets back on his feet. You know, you, if, if worrying is a natural tendency, then what do you think he's been feeling as he's watched the brook get lower and lower, right? Like, we like to know what's next before we need to know what's next, right? Because then we can enjoy the present, right? But it's, it's when we don't know what's next and we see we're going to need a next that we start to worry, and it's kind of interesting, right? Look at what verse 8 says. Then, then the word of the Lord came to him. You notice when God talks to him is after the brook dries up, right? He doesn't say, don't worry, I know it's, I know it's going down. I, I got a plan for you when, when it's done. Uh, I'm going to send you somewhere else. No, he doesn't say that. He waits. The brook dries up, then the word of the Lord comes. It comes to him in his desperation, now, around the time that Elijah went to see King Ahab the first time, uh, in a little town about 100 miles to the north, there was a young couple who had just had their first child. They were part of Jezebel's father's kingdom, and so they worshipped Baal just like everyone else in the kingdom, and things had been going well for them, and they'd been prosperous. In fact, they'd recently built a new addition on their house, an extra room in case they had out-of-town guests, and uh, things were going amazing for them, and they were very thankful to Baal, the God that they believed was taking care of them. But then the rains stopped, and somehow uh, things began to become more difficult, and then the husband dies, and this woman is left alone with her little child. She looks for work and tries to find some way to make ends meet, but she can't find any. She, she cries out to Baal, saying, please send the rain, please. He, she knows if it'll just rain and people will become prosperous again, I can rent out this extra room and I can support my family. It's all going to be okay. I just need the rain. And so she cries out, begging Baal to send the rain. But at this point, nobody has any money. Nobody has any food. Nobody's interested in renting out her room. And she watches as the oil in her jug and the flour in her jar grow less and less. At some point, she realizes she's only got a couple weeks left if things don't change. Her prayers become more and more desperate. She's begging Baal to send the rain before she runs out of food. A couple weeks left. Please, just send the rain before I run out of food. Send the rain before I run out of food. Please don't let us die like this. It's around this time that the brook goes dry and the word of the Lord comes to Elijah in verse 9, and it says, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. This would have seemed a strange command to Elijah, but instead of questioning God, he simply obeys. The word of the Lord comes, and he goes. Now, Elijah's a wanted man. Everybody's looking for him. Uh, the, there's a drought in the land, there's almost no water. So this 100-mile journey could have taken him a couple of weeks if he had to go at night, if he had to 
be sneaky if he had to make sure he found water. But one morning, he finally looks up over the horizon and he sees the town of Zarephath. He looks forward to God's provision. Now all he's got to do is figure out which widow God commanded to take care of him, and he is going to be set. Meanwhile, as Elijah is walking towards the town, the young widow wakes up to hear her son crying, and she knows that he's hungry. She looks at her jar of oil, and there's only a couple of drops left. She looks at her jar of flour, and realizes today's the day. She has enough flour for one last piece of bread. Her chest grows tight. She feels fear gripping her. She takes a deep breath trying to, trying to expand her chest, but she exhales and spurts. She goes over and picks her son up and she holds him and she calms him by whispering in his ear. She says, hey, I'm going to go get some sticks. I'm going to make a little fire. I'm going to make a piece of bread, okay? I'm going to go make you something to eat, all right? Her son quiets in her arms. And then she remembers this will be the last time she ever calms her son with food. After that, she knew she would just have to hold him, rock him in her arms, whisper that she loved him, tell him that she's sorry as she watched the light fade from his eyes. That's what she's thinking about as she walks out of the city gates, begins to pick up sticks. She feels overwhelmed, desperate, this dark numbness just descends upon her. She's lost in her own thoughts. A stranger's voice rouses her from her dark stupor. She looks up and sees a Jewish man, and uh, she realizes he's talking to her. Verse 10 tells us, Elijah said to her, Bring me some water so I can have a drink. Well, despite her desperate situation, she actually knows she's going to run out of food before she runs out of water, so she might as well do this last act of kindness for a stranger. And so she gets up and she heads to get Elijah a little bit of water. Well, Elijah, as she walks, the verse 11 says, And as she was going to bring Elijah the water, Elijah called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. Elijah may have seen her willingness to get him water, right? And thought, maybe this is the one that God's commanded to take care of me. So he asked her to bring him something to eat. But his request would have stopped her in her tracks. Her mind snapped back to her devastating reality. She replies in verse 12, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked. And she could have stopped there, right? She could have just said, ah, you know what, I actually don't have anything baked at home. I'm, I'm sorry. I, uh, I get you that water, but, but yeah, I, I just, I don't have anything ready. But instead, knowing she's about to die, she decides, you know what, I'm just going to lay it all out there. You can hear the hopelessness in her voice as 
she decides to bring this stranger into her desperate plight. Maybe she hopes he'll be sympathetic. Maybe she feels really alone, just wants to talk to somebody, tell somebody what she's going through. She says, all I have left is a handful of flour in a jar, a little oil in a jug. And right now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. There's a lot of things to see in this verse. It's interesting the way she begins. She says, as the Lord your God lives. The first word in the Hebrew, it's actually the word alive. She says, alive is Yahweh your God. This woman believes in the existence of Yahweh, the God of Israel. It's likely she's heard that he's the God that shut off the rain. Not only does she believe in his existence, but she believes that the God of Israel, this Yahweh, is alive and well. It seems from the text she's given up on Baal at this point. She's prayed over and over again for him to send the rain, and he's failed to answer her prayers, and finally she's given up trusting in him. In her mind, Baal, the God she's been trusting in, is dead. Her God was dead, and she knows that her and her son will soon join him. You see, in the Hebrew, the first word this woman utters is alive, and she uses it to describe Yahweh. And the last word that she utters is die, and she uses it to describe herself and her son. And she knew the reason she was going to die. She's going to die because she picked the wrong God. She picked the wrong God. She'd been praying to a God that didn't exist. She'd been begging a God that didn't have the power to send the rain to send the rain. And when you pick the wrong God, he doesn't answer. And when he doesn't answer, you die. Yahweh might be alive, but she didn't think that would be of any help to her because Yahweh was Elijah's God and not hers. Remember what she said? Alive is Yahweh, your God. You ever feel the way this woman felt? Maybe you didn't doubt God's existence, but you found yourself doubting that God was interested in you and your plight. You didn't doubt God was powerful enough to fix the brokenness in your life, but you wondered if he cared enough to get involved. So there's a lot of people in this world that believe in God, and they believe that God is powerful, and they may even believe that God loves, but he loves other people. He doesn't love them. You ever had someone tell you a promise of God, and you thought, that's a sweet promise, and maybe it, it's actually even true for you, but for some reason it just doesn't ring true you think it may be true for them, but it just doesn't ring true for you. When this woman sees Elijah, she sees a man whose God is alive. She sees a man whose God loves him, but she doesn't think that that God wants anything to do with her. Yahweh is his God, not hers. And if you ask her why, if you said, well, why do you think that? Why, why would you think Yahweh is Elijah's God? Why, why wouldn't you think he's your God too? Why, why don't you think that he cares about you? She would have plenty to say. 
She would just say, are you kidding me? Look at my life. My husband's dead. And I'm about to make a one last piece of bread for me and my little child to eat, and then we're going to die. Does that sound like the plight of someone that God loves? Like the plight of someone that God cares about? And then maybe she would soften, and she would say, but you know what? I mean, I'll be honest with you. It's my fault. It's my fault. I picked the wrong God. All my life I've been praying to Baal. I've been trusting in him. I gave him credit for everything good that ever happened. And so it makes sense that Yahweh would not be my God. I I rejected him. I'm the one that chose not to follow him. It makes sense. I loved and worshipped something that he made instead of the creator. Why on earth would I expect Yahweh to be my God after all of the years I've spent following after idols. After all the things that I've done to displease him. Some of you may be able to relate to the way this woman's feeling. She's got a pretty convincing argument, right? It's not hard to see why this woman would believe that Yahweh wasn't her God. Her circumstances made it really hard To see that there was a God that loved her, that was in control of everything, that was watching over her. And her sin and her idolatry made it obvious both to herself and to everyone else that she didn't deserve that kind of love anyway. But listen to how Elijah responds to this woman's plight. He says, do not fear. Uh, that, that seems kind of a strange way to respond, right, to, to what she just said. Uh, this woman's husband's dead. She's gathering sticks for a final meal with her son until she holds them while they both pass away. And she's not supposed to be afraid? This woman is in the presence of a prophet of Yahweh, and she has chosen to file idols all of her life, and she's not supposed to be afraid. Why not? Does Elijah have like some shipment of food that she's not aware of? Well, what on earth could Elijah possibly offer this woman that would alleviate her fears? I'll tell you what, you won't find the answer to that in the next sentence. You know what Elijah says? Go and do as you've said, but first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterwards, make yourself and your son something to eat. Can you imagine, like, this woman, she, she just must be like, my day is going from, like, the worst to worser. She's, she's like, 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 something in her, and she now, at this point, has no idea what, like, Cause her to think maybe opening up and being vulnerable and sharing with this complete stranger might offer her like a little comfort. Like maybe he would just say, I'm sorry, that's hard. I wish I could help you. I mean, you ever, you ever do that, right? You ever open up and become vulnerable to someone and against your better judgment, probably, right? And then, and, and then they say the stupidest thing in the world back to you, and you're just like, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? Like, did, did, that, 
just happen? Did, did I just like open up and like share my heart? And then they like told me that like the same thing happened to them except for when they described it, it was not even close to the same thing. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's not the same thing. Yeah, okay, so she tells this Elijah that like she's about to die. She's got enough food for one last piece of bread that she's gonna share with her son and then the two of us are gonna hold each other while we die together. And Elijah goes, don't be afraid. Why don't you go make me a piece of bread first before you do that thing you're gonna do with your son. Right? The thing like the eat a piece and die thing with your son. Like, why don't you like, make me a piece of bread first? And, and like, she has enough for one piece of bread. So like, how is she going to make him a piece of bread and then make her son a piece of bread? That's not good. There's no way she can do that. And, and how is she not supposed to be afraid? Well, fortunately for her, Elijah's not done talking yet, right? Like if that, if that was the end of the sentence, this would be a very bleak story. But, um, but he's still talking, so we better find out what he's going to say that's going to justify his call on her to not be afraid and to make him a piece of bread first. What could possibly inspire or justify this kind of request? Well, look at verse 14, and you'll find the reason that Elijah believes that he is able to call her to do this. The text says, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. You see, the reason that he gives is a promise. And what you'll find is that as terrible and as bleak as her situation is, the promise is actually bigger than the problem. In fact, you want to know the craziest thing? The promise is actually the answer to the prayers that she'd been praying to Baal. What do you think she'd been praying this whole time? Let it rain before I run out of food. Think about it. If this promise is true, let's just, let's just say, if this promise were true, does she have to be afraid anymore? She doesn't, right? If this promise is true, can she make Elijah a piece of bread first and then make one for herself and one for her son and then do it again tomorrow? If the promise is true, it is bigger than the problem. As big as this woman's problem seems, God's promises is bigger, and guess what? It's crazy, but that reality remains the exact same for us today as it was for her. I mean, think about it. Pick a problem. Pick a problem in your life. Pick a problem in your past. Pick a problem in this world. Pick a problem in history. Pick a problem. And consider for a moment. Is there a promise in the Bible that's bigger than the problem? A promise that if it were true, you would not have to be afraid of that problem anymore. No one can argue, no one can argue that the promises of God are not bigger than the problems of this world. 
You can, you can say all you want about how terrible the problems of this world are, and you're not even scratching the surface. But as big as they are, the promises of God are bigger. And no one can disagree with that. People can argue that they're not true. You know, that could be an argument that someone might, might want to try to make. But no one can argue that they're not bigger. Think about it. If your problem's loneliness, Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus is the friend who sticks closer than a brother. He is our true companion. If the promise is guilt or shame because of something that you've done in your past, Isaiah 1, 18 says, Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. If the problem is something that happened to you in the past, Romans 8, 28 comes and says, We know that for those who love God, he works all things together for good. 1 Peter 5, 10, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. If the problem is death, John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me, though he die, it will he live. The world's got some massive problems in it. But the reality is the promises of God that we have in his word are bigger. And so the question is, will you believe that the God of the Bible is your God? And will you believe that the promises that he has made are true for you? Or will you believe that they're too good to be true and that if they're true at all, they're only true for someone else. Now, when we look at this story, just go back to the story for a minute. Does it make sense to you that God is providing food and water for Elijah? Now, does it make sense? Do you, like, after he goes and he, like, says that thing to the king, does, do you kind of assume God's going to make give him food and water until he needs to say that it's going to rain again, right? Like, so when he's by the brook, you're like, that makes sense. Does that promise seem like extravagant to you or like too big or too good to be true? The fact that like he's going to feed Elijah somehow? No, I mean, you're like, of course he's going to feed Elijah. In fact, if God, if the brook dried up and then Elijah shriveled up and died next to the brook, you'd be like, that's a surprising story. That's a twist I wasn't expecting. You, you, you know, you, you, you wouldn't, you'd be like, I, I'm wondering about that God. You know what I'm saying? Like it would cause you a little bit of like, uh, you know, worry might be a good, uh, like, uh, you know, response to that kind of treatment. But that's not what happened. You expect God to take care of his prophet. In fact, the promises of God to give Elijah food and water don't even seem too big or extravagant, or too good to be true. They just make sense. Like, sure. But what about this widow? Like a foreigner, a pagan who worshipped an idol all of her life, who'd been praying to Baal to send the rain. It, it would make sense that if you pray to the wrong God to send the rain, then the wrong God's not going to listen to you, and that's just... You, you get what, you know what I'm saying? Like that, that's just life. That's just the way it works. It, it, the promise to take care of her seems extravagant, doesn't it? It seems like, it seems overwhelming. It seems almost like just, 
You're not expecting it at least. In this story, it actually makes sense for Elijah not to be afraid. Like when he goes and he obeys God and he tells the king, it makes sense that he shouldn't be afraid. But this pagan widow, it doesn't make sense why she should not be afraid. It doesn't make sense. But what we see in this story is that God saw this widow worshiping Baal 100 miles north of his kingdom. And he heard her cries, even though she was praying to a different God. And he answered her. In fact, you'll find that everything about the timing of this story had this widow in mind. The brook dries up at just the right time. She's just the right distance for Elijah to, to get there the morning that she's walking out, ready to make her last meal, finally having given up on Baal, ready to hear of Yahweh, a heart ready to receive a promise, a heart that was so hopeless and so desperate that she was ready to receive good news. It's just so clear from this story that, that God has his eye on her throughout it all. I mean, even from the extra room that she built in her house so that Elijah would have a place to stay for the years that it was going to take and that she would be taken care of. And what happens in this story is this. God invites this pagan widow and her son into the provision that he was giving to his prophet. You see, like, Elijah could have stayed by that brook for the whole three and a half years, right, and been fine. But what God says is, I am going to take care of Elijah because he deserves it. He's earned it. He, he is my prophet. I uh, am committed to providing for him. I'm going to take care of him. But then he looks at this widow and he has compassion on her. And he says, you know what? I am going to invite her into the care and the provision that I have for my prophet. I'm not just going to provide for my prophet. I'm going to share the provisions that I have for my prophet with her. Even though she doesn't deserve it. Even though uh, she's done nothing worthy of it. I choose her to invite into the provision that I have in store for my prophet. The call for this widow is to join Elijah and be provided for, right? To attach herself to Elijah and to be provided for. To receive Elijah and to receive provision, right? That, 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 that's what you see happening in this story, right? If, if she, it, Elijah's going to get provided for with or without this widow, right? The question is, will she join him and be provided for herself? That's the invitation. That's the grace. 
And she responds, verse 15 and 16, and she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Uh, Of course, it does still beg the question how God can do this, right? Like, how can God answer the prayer of a woman who prayed to the wrong God? How can he provide for a woman who chose to reject him and worship an idol? How can a holy God tell a pagan idolater she doesn't have to be afraid in the presence of his prophet? How can Yahweh offer sinners promises that are bigger than the problems they deserve to face alone? That's the question, right? How does Yahweh offer these big promises that are bigger than the problems that you and I and every sinner deserves to have to face alone for the choices that we've made. This desperate woman picking up the sticks outside the city deserved to die for rejecting the living God and worshiping a statue. She deserved to die because she did not believe that Yahweh was her God. But she didn't die. And the reason she did not die is because centuries later, there would be another person who would find themselves feeling absolutely overwhelmed outside the city gates. But this person would be no pagan idolater. This person would be none other than the Son of God himself. And he did not deserve to die. He did not deserve to die like the widow did. Nevertheless, there he hung outside the city on a Roman cross, dying the death of a blasphemer, dying the death of a pagan idolater. And even though he never did anything wrong, the sky went dark. The just judgment of a holy God fell upon him for our sin. He felt forsaken and alone, overcome by a desperation that exceeds anything, even the desperation that this widow felt that day. And if you're looking for evidence that God had rejected him, it would have been really easy to find. There he hung naked on a cross, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Even the sun refused to shine upon him. In his body he was bearing the penalty for our sins. If anyone had a right to disbelieve the promises of God, if anyone had a right to say, he's your God, not mine, it was Jesus. But what does he do even as he feels himself forsaken? He cries out in Matthew 27, 46, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Unlike the widow, he refuses to disbelieve that Yahweh is his God, even though his circumstances made it feel like he was forsaken, even though he felt cursed, even though he was bearing in his body the judgment of this God against sin, he refused to disbelieve that Yahweh was his God, my God, my God. He is faithful. That is what faithfulness looks like. And he's faithful for all the times we've been faithless. He clings to the promise of God for all the time we've disbelieved them. He calls my God for every time we've thought, you're not my God. You don't love me. You aren't there for me. Your promises aren't true for me. 
This is one who deserves every promise of God. He deserves them, and he deserves them for all eternity. You ever wonder why the promises of God are so big? You ever read them and just feel like, these things are outlandish. These things are crazy. These things don't even make sense. Well, guess what? They make sense for someone. They make sense for Jesus, don't they? Is there a promise of God that is so big that you think it exaggerates what Jesus deserves? There's not, right? When you read the promises of God, no matter how big they seem, you look at them and you, you look at Jesus and you say, that one deserves those promises. <laughs> they make sense for him. What makes the promises of God so hard to believe for us is they really are too big. They really are more than we deserve. They really are hard to believe, not because they're too small and not because they're not good enough or they don't apply. They're hard to believe because they're too big. Think about it. When you're with someone, have you ever been with someone in like an absolutely devastating situation and you're almost embarrassed to tell them a promise of God because it seems too big? It seems too big. Not because it doesn't apply, not because it wouldn't be great if it was true, it just seems too big. Well, there is not a promise that is too big for Jesus. And what the gospel is, is the gospel is Jesus coming and inviting us into the provisions that God has made for him. Inviting us in to the promises that he has earned. Inviting us in to all that God has in store for him. Heaven is his feast. It's his reward. But instead of having it in heaven by himself, like Elijah at the brook, he comes to us. He descends. He makes the 100-mile journey all the way through the galaxies to us. And he invites us to join in his provision, to join in the promises that God has for him. That's what he does. John 6, 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven if anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus gave his life on the cross to forgive sinners like you and me so that he could invite us into the promises that he has earned. Now, I just want to end with this. Please do not underestimate the gift that it is to know these promises. Don't underestimate the gift that it is to know this morning that there is not a problem in this world or a problem that you could ever face that there is not a promise in God's word that's bigger. Do you know what the Bible says? The Bible says there were many, many widows in Elijah's day. Only one of them that happened to be a pagan widow hundreds of miles away, got to hear the promise. There are three billion people in this world who have never heard promises bigger than their problems. There are three billion people in this world that have not been invited in. You may be going through some hard things 
Your circumstances may be bleak. You may have had or be having some significant suffering in your life. But do not doubt that your God has looked upon you with compassion. And long before you ever had those problems, he began to put things into action to ensure that you would have a promise that was bigger than whatever suffering you may have faced. And that's not something to take lightly. Not everybody has that. And so let's receive the promises as true for us, not because we deserve them, but because our Savior has invited us in to what he has earned. Because our God is at mercy on us. Amen. Dear Jesus, we thank you for your promises that you earned for us. The provision that is so massive, so significant, so glorious, so beyond anything we could ever ask or imagine that you earned and then invited us into. That you would invite us even into the love that the Father has for you. That you would say, as the Father loves me, so I have loved you. That they may be with me and that, they may, that we may be one and that you would love them just as you have loved me. Jesus, that you would pray that, that you would invite us into that. Thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for forgiving us. And thank you that whatever problems we may face in the rest of our life, you have given us a promise that is bigger. And after we have suffered a little while, you yourself will come and you will strengthen and establish and confirm and restore us. And we will live with you forever. Thank you, Jesus. In your name, amen.